This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the Green Party gears up to take on two corporate parties in November. And the Movement for a People's Party plans to be on the presidential ballot in 2024. But its members are in the streets today. But first, by some measures, the current movement against police brutality is the largest political movement ever seen in the United States. But Clarence Taylor, a professor emeritus of history at Baruch College in New York City, reminds us that brutal, repressive cops have been part of Americana for most of the nation's history. Professor Taylor has written a book titled Fight the Power, African Americans and the Long History of Police Brutality in New York City. The police in New York City have been probably one of the cruelest, vicious police departments in the country. They have a long history, since, really since the creation of the New York City Police Department in the uh, 19th century, going after black people. It's true that they also targeted others, especially during labor confrontations and so forth. But they had a, a sort of particular hatred for black people. And it's because black people then, in the eyes of many whites, people who are a criminal race. So they've done this with impunity, backed by those in power to attack black people, lock them up, uh, and even murder them. And I should also note that they also got the support of the uh, mainstream press who would always print the stories that the police would tell them when there was an incident, a shooting of a black person. Well, just as there's a long history of police abuse, there's also a long history in New York City of resistance, of community organizing against the police. That is correct. And that organizing starts early, but when there is a increase in the black population and communities like Harlem and Bethlehem-Stuyvesant, there is uh, fierce organizing going on to take on that police brutality. And forces that have usually been ignored by those writing on police brutality. So an important organization in that struggle against police brutality uh, has been the uh, black press. In New York City, the People's Voice, a paper created by Adam Clayton Powell Jr., was at the top of the list in terms of taking on police brutality. Most white publications did report on police brutality cases, but the voice even took it a, a step further. The black press would keep the story alive, but the voice would always come in support of the victimized, the person was being, the person was brutalized, the person was shot, the person was killed. They would always challenge the narrative of the police department. They would get eyewitnesses who were not associated, for example, with the victims, people out on the street, who, and they would take their stories and print them. 
the victim lived, of course, they would talk to the victim. And the voice would also just challenge the notion that the police were always in the right and that the black citizens who they attacked were criminal. They would go into the background of those victims and note that these were not criminals, but they were ordinary people who had jobs, who went to school and so on and so forth, who were targeted by the police. The voice would also suggest solutions to the problem. So it called for adding more black police officers. Now, back in the 1940s and 1950s, many saw this as a solution to police brutality. The voice's argument was that we don't want them just hired as patrol officers. We want them at all levels of the police department, and particularly focused on detectives, because detectives are the ones who do the investigation of the crime. So the voice pushed a number of solutions in order to, to deal with this problem. And with many of the early advocates of police brutality uh, had in common, was that they saw police brutality not as a problem of rogue cops, but instead they said it was a essentially a, a systematic problem and that what we need to do is challenge the power of the police. New York City was one of the earliest cities in the country to adopt a civilian police review board, but it was ineffectual. It was, in fact, the first civilian complaint review board was actually created in 1953 after the black press revealed a scandal between the New York City Police Department and the United States Justice Department. The Justice Department in the early 50s was investigating police brutality throughout the country. And the police department in New York City and the the, uh, Justice Department made a deal that they would not be investigated for police brutality. And when this was revealed in the press, the response then was to create a civilian complaints review board. This early review board consisted of three deputy police commissioners. So why in the world is called the Civilian Complaint Review Board is still puzzling, except that civilians can go to this board and make complaints. That was in the 1950s. Of course, police brutality was not controlled by the, the police department. You don't put the instruments of control and trying to stop it in the hands of the people who are just carrying out these vicious crimes. So... Clearly, by the 1960s, people on the ground, groups such as CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and others were calling for a civilian complaint review board that would have full power to investigate, to hold hearings, and also to decide on punishment. Now, the New York City administrators, the mayor, and so forth, completely ignored this. But it really became a focus in 1964 after the Harlem and Bethlehem-Stuyvesant Rebellion. The killing of a 15-year-old African-American by an off-duty uh, police lieutenant led to people demonstrating pouring on the streets. This sort of uprising that takes place that was viciously crushed by the New York City Police Department. 
But it was at this point that a number of people were coming forward and saying, look, you know, we need to do something to stop this. We need a civilian complaint review board. And eventually a liberal mayor, a Republican liberal mayor, John Lindsay, said if, if elected, he said this in 1965, if elected, I will create a real civilian complaint review board. And he was elected. And he did create through executive order, the first civilian complaint review board that had civilians, four civilians, three police officers. But in the end, decision to discipline the police was still left in the hands of the police commissioner. But that was even too much for the police. And so the Potomac Benevolent Association led a racist campaign to dismantle this new civilian complaint review board, including paying for ads in newspapers showing a young white woman coming out of the subway at night and with the heading that we will not be able to protect her if this civilian complaint review board remains in existence. So with the ad campaign challenging legally in court and pushing for a referendum, which they were able to get signatures and have the referendum so for people, those New York citizens could vote on the review board. But this campaign, the 1966 Civilian Complaint Review Board that Lindsay created was defeated. Uh, New Yorkers, overwhelmingly white New Yorkers, voted against the Civilian Complaint Review Board, while blacks and Latinos voted in favor of it. But this is a very important moment in history for the police because not only did they manage to hold on to their police powers, but they also managed to gain a great deal of political power using what I call the false narrative. And that false narrative is anytime you attempt to take away our power, we are going to accuse you of siding with criminals, that you are essentially uh, going to open the city up to criminals and let them take over. And this narrative worked because very few politicians challenged the New York City Police Department. Now, you say that the imbalance in power between the police and the black community is the root of the problem, and that what folks need is more power over the cops, as in community control of the police. Yes. All these reforms that have been pushed, <laughs> body cams, all this additional training that police officers have been given, this doesn't work oversight and so forth. We know it doesn't work because it doesn't really get at the root of the problem. I would even dare say defunding the police, although I am support of taking those, those enormous amounts of money that police departments have been given and using those for vital services. But in the end, the police department and administration can find ways around that, like the current mayor has done with the $1 billion cut to the police department. So that really doesn't challenge, in the end, the enormous amount of power that police have over citizens. And so this is the way that we essentially have to go in order to stop the vicious crimes committed by police. In your book, you outline the Patrolman's Benevolent Association's campaign against Mayor Lindsay back in the 60s, trying to beat back his police reforms. 
And now, under Mayor de Blasio in New York City, the police union seems to have the mayor cowed, scared, running scared. Yes, this was a mayor who, when he ran for office, promised police reform. He talks about ending stop, question, and frisk. At least he was going to stop the appeal that the Bloomberg administration made after a federal court ruled that it was racial profiling and they needed to stop that. He was a person who was against hiring more police officers. He even indicated that he was in support of the right to know legislation, which would make police officers identify themselves. They would have to carry a car to give to a person. They would have to ask for their permission if they wanted to uh, question or frisk them. And the person had the right to say no. So all this was something that Blasio was in favor of. And when he did in the appeal of the Bloomberg administration, he was viciously attacked by the police. And then there was this case where a deranged person shot and killed two police officers. And the head of the PBA said that the mayor has blood on his hands. He is responsible for the killing of those two police officers. And then at their funerals, the police turned their back, and the Blasio saw his poll numbers among white New Yorkers drop. And essentially, he did an about face. He increased the police department by 1,300 members. He came out in support, would not back away from broken windows policy, the same policy that led to the killing of Eric Gardner. He held up the legislation, the right to know, because he went supported until it was watered down. And every time I hear de Blasio on television, on the radio, he is consistently backing the police. So there is absolutely no doubt that he has turned his back on police reform, even in the most recent case where he is siding with the police in terms of blaming bail reform for the spike supposed rise in crimes in New York City. You're a professor emeritus, which means that you take a long view. So what's your view on the recent mass demonstrations across the country against police brutality? Well, my view about the recent wave of demonstrations and protests is a good one. I mean, I feel really good about this. I I realize that it is not a spontaneous event, that these are folks that have been organizing for years to take on police brutality. And the addition of white demonstrators indicates that many people are joining these protests not only because of police brutality, but because they have also been victimized by problems such as unemployment, high rising costs of housing, the cost of education, and so forth. And so that has made many folks willing to accept that, hey, you know, the the entire system here is broken, including policing. 
until they have come out in large numbers to stop the devastation of neoliberal policy that's connected with policing, right? So you basically defund education, you defund health care and so forth, but you then turn around and put more money into police departments. So people are making those connections. Hopefully they will not be co-opted because the Democratic Party and others have been attempting to co-opt this movement by pushing for their legislation, police reform, that we know in the end will not work. The movement is serious, but so is the opposition to police reform. Now, that opposition comes from two camps. Obviously, the right, the extreme right, that back police. They are folks in the Republican Party and some in the Democratic Party who have voiced their concern about even the weak measures that have been pushed by some of the uh, police reform movements. But I think also there are those who some see as friends who are really not friends in this campaign who are pushing measures that we know won't work, but nevertheless, they have sort of pushed this in order to co-opt the movement. So it's important that we talk about power and what is missing in the police reformers, especially coming out of the Democratic Party, is any talk about reducing power and enhancing power of citizens. Back in 2018, the Congressional Black Caucus voted overwhelmingly to elevate the cops to the status of a protected class, and they also voted to make assault on police a hate crime, a federal hate crime. Two black New York congressmen voted for that bill, along with 75% of the rest of the caucus. Those congressmen were Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn and Gregory Meeks of Queens. Yes, these are the folks who I am talking about. They are clearly not on the side of those who really want fundamental change, those folks who are challenging police power. Gregory Meeks and Hakeem Jeffries are opportunists. They are not going to rope the rock the boat of the neoliberal agenda of the uh, mainstream Democrats. So they come on television that they talk against police brutality, but then they push these measures that are essentially not going to do anything. The majority of members of the Black Caucus have also joined in this co-optation campaign. The interesting thing about the Congressional Black Caucus and people like uh, Meeks and others, they never come out in support of a much more left-leaning Democrats. They have essentially joined on the side of those neoliberals who are going to essentially derail any real attempt of challenging the devastating power of the police. That was Professor Clarence Taylor speaking from New York City. When the corporate Democrats defeated Bernie Sanders' first race for president, In 2016, a number of Sanders supporters left the Democratic Party entirely and formed the Movement for a People's Party. Nick Branna is national coordinator for the MPP. 
Now Bernie Sanders has been forced out of the presidential race once again. We ask Nick Brana if Sanders' second defeat has resulted in a boost in recruitment for the People's Party movement. It has very much so because people saw, Bernie supporters saw the way that the Democratic Party admittedly cheated Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary. Even Donna Brazil admitted it. A year later, the party stacked it against him in favor of Hillary, despite the fact that they knew and understood that Hillary was going to lose to Donald Trump or there was, that she was at great risk of losing to Donald Trump. My role, I was on the campaign. I was the national political outreach coordinator. And it was my role to inform the party of that, in fact, that they were going to lose because I was the one who was charged with reaching out to the superdelegates along with a few of others and trying to convince them to support Bernie, the party elite, state party chairs, DNC members. And now that we've seen it a second time, now that he has been cheated a second time in a similar way, there's a lot of realization and extensive realization that, in fact, the Democratic Party is no home for progressives. It is no home for anyone who wants to work to improve the country for working people. And so people are leaving in droves. Our revolution and other Bernie activists, after Bernie bowed out, they were all dressed up, but with no candidate to support. And at least one of our revolution's big chapters has gone over to your side. Absolutely. Our revolution, Los Angeles, made the decision in May. They pulled their membership. They have about 10,000 people, and it's grown since about 13,000. And they polled their membership, and by a 72% majority, they voted to start a new party instead of continuing to reform the Democratic Party. Obviously, that's so meaningful because our revolution, it came out of Bernie's campaign in order to really advance the ideas of the political revolution and try to reform the Democratic Party. The Los Angeles chapter and also Central Connecticut chapter and other chapters would leave the Democratic Party and join us in building a major new party is a very symbolic turn of events inside the progressive movement towards a major new party. This coronavirus followed almost immediately by a Great Depression economic situation has, of course, revealed many contradictions in our society, including the weaknesses in terms of responding to people's crises of the Democratic Party. No doubt about it. The way that the Democrats and Republicans have responded to coronavirus has been, I would say, as equally damning as what they did to Bernie Sanders in the primary in terms of convincing progressives and Bernie supporters and others who were holding on to the Democratic Party in hopes that it could be reformed, that it in fact cannot, that it is a corporate party. What we saw in March in response to the coronavirus was the Democrats and Republicans in Congress coming together to unanimously pass a multi-trillion dollar Wall Street bailout in a time when the suffering of working people was at a unprecedented, I mean, historic level. People, rather than getting a bailout themselves, they were told that they were all going to lose their jobs. And yet somehow they were supposed to continue paying rent, paying for food. Obviously, that equation does not square in a country where 80 percent of people live already 
paycheck to paycheck, and half of the country has less than $500 in savings. And so the response has been an absolute catastrophe. And I also want to say that it's been a completely avoidable. All of the layoffs, all of the different, the unemployment, the destruction of small businesses, 40% of which are expected to go out of business during this crisis, all of that was avoidable. In Europe, they just put everyone, the governments of Europe, many of them, put all of their citizens on payroll. They guaranteed a paycheck. They subsidized payroll of the businesses affected by the crisis. And so everyone kept their jobs and kept their paychecks as well. Here in the United States, instead, they boosted unemployment by a meager amount. And so, of course, everybody lost their jobs. Everybody's health care is tied to their jobs. And so they lost their health care as well in the middle of a pandemic. And then you have Joe Biden, who is the Democrat nominee in the United States now, saying that he wants to veto Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. And when the Democrats put forward their aspirational response, which was the HEROES Act back in May as well, it didn't include Medicare for all. It didn't include a universal basic income. It didn't include free public college. And this was their kind of pie in the sky aspirational bill that Joe Biden's task forces, you know, the meaningless task forces that he came to an agreement with after Bernie Sanders, after Bernie dropped out, it just came to many of the same kind of meaningless compromises, no Medicare for all, no free public college, nothing that a lot of wealthy countries around the world take for granted at this point, and that are become all the more essential to working people just surviving in the middle of this pandemic and crisis and, and economic catastrophe that has become the response in the United States. The movement for a People's Party isn't yet on the ballot. The Green Party has been on the ballot for, oh, for decades, and including this year in many states. What's your party's attitude towards the Green Party and what your supporters should do this year? We're grateful that the Green Party has helped to trailblaze, essentially, for the work that we're doing. We see the Green Party very much in the way, historically, when a major new party actually succeeded in replacing a establishment party in the 1850s, the last example we have of that is the Republican Party replacing the Whig Party. But before the Republican Party came about, and there was this massive split in the Whig Party over continuing to support slavery in that party because the base was abolitionist, but the party elites had forced through a pro-slavery platform. There were parties before that. There were parties that were abolitionists before that, including the Free Soil Party and the Liberty Party. And they helped lay the groundwork in the end and make the emergence of the Republican Party possible that ultimately overtook the Whig Party, replaced one of the major parties in the United States. I think that the Green Party has done that over this past decade. But unfortunately, it is not perceived as widely viable. It is perceived also as being an environmental party. Really, its most immediate economic concerns of being unable to afford rent and housing and food, particularly in this time when, when bread lines are forming across the country. And a party's identity, a working class party's identity, needs to be focused on those very immediate concerns. And then there's also the fact that just because it's been around for a long time, People, unfortunately, don't think that it has room to grow 
And that is a perception that's very difficult to get out of. And so something that can emerge that has young people, that has people of color, that can be a, a much stronger vehicle for actually replacing one of the major parties in the United States. And that's what we think will happen, you know, analogous to what happened in the 1850s in that way. Even the most left-leaning congresspersons in the Democratic Party still do not have positions on foreign policy that would qualify them as anti-imperialist. Tell us about the movement for a People's Party and your foreign policy. Yes, we believe in ending these wars, and that's something that we know that the American public wants because politicians campaign on it continuously including Obama, including Trump to an extent, you know, over Hillary Clinton. In both of those instances, the left war-mongering candidate, essentially, who wanted to get us out of Iraq, wanted to get us out of Afghanistan, has won. What we've seen, of course, during this time is that the Democratic Party has actually moved to the right of the Republican Party during Trump's term and been giving him more money than he asked for for the military, been pushing him to be more belligerent on an international level. And so as MPP, we believe in slashing the Pentagon's budget, reallocating that to social services here in the United States, cutting it by more than half. Our military budget right now exceeds the next 10 countries' military budgets combined. We believe in dismantling the empire. And when it comes to reference to all of the different military bases, the hundreds of military bases that we have across the country. Rather, those resources and that time and that energy is better spent here at home. Because what are we defending if we have a third of families with children who cannot afford food, which is what we have in this crisis? And we had a fifth of families with children who couldn't afford food before that. What are we defending if we have Black families who have a wealth of one cent with families with children in comparison to white families with a dollar in wealth. And so obviously we have a lot more work to do here at home. And that's what we believe that we should focus on. Tell us about your strategy for being a strong contender on the presidential ballot in 2024. And are you going to run congressional and local candidates before that time? Yeah. We are going to run congressional and local candidates before 2024 and during 2024. But what we believe, one thing that we believe is important is to run in a way that we can have some early victories, including in the midterms in 2022, some congressional victories. And so making sure that we are running strategically as opposed to a kind of scattershot effort, which is simply to maintain ballot access or to run kind of in, in every place because that helps us prove viability. From victories, being able to send members of Congress into the new session in 2022. The Democratic Party's strategy seems to be simply presenting itself as not Trump. Do you think that's viable this second time around with Trump? I think that while Joe Biden may win the election, so it might be viable in their narrow sense that they're able to defeat him in that way. But that remains a very, very open question because there's a lot of time left in the election. And with coronavirus and with, for example, people's lifeline 
benefits in terms of unemployment benefits and moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures, threatening tens of millions of people, those benefits ending in just three weeks. It's really impossible to see what's going to happen in this country beyond that. We've already had a mass uprising against police brutality and systemic racism in June. And if you think that kicking 23 million people into a pandemic out of their homes is going to reduce uh, that crisis and it's going to keep people off the streets and it's going to not lead to another uprising and then eliminating 45 million people from their unemployment lifeline, I think they're mistaken in that. They may be able to beat Donald Trump with Joe Biden, but what that indicates, of course, is a continuation of the last 50 years of the neoliberal project and the and, and turn of the two parties to the right, because regardless of which party has been in power for the last few decades, you have just seen each new administration and each new president is further to the right than the other, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And you see astonishing continuity between the parties as well. And this is why, of course, Noam Chomsky has called the United States a one-party state. You saw Clinton pick up on NAFTA right where George Bush left off. You saw Obama pick up on the wars and on the Wall Street bailouts right where George Bush Jr. left off. And so you see these things, you know, happening, you know, even picking up uh, the same defense secretary. And so you see this incredible continuity throughout the two parties. There is no major party in the United States if you believe, if you want to vote for less inequality, if you want to vote for free public college, no major party for you. If you want Medicare for all or a national health service, no major party for you. If you want to break up the big banks and to, to actually hold the financial interests that are crashing the economy every few years, every several years, and transferring massive amounts of wealth to themselves from working people in the process, if you want to end too big to jail and too big to fail, there is no major party in this country for that. And so what this indicates, the fact that even if Joe Biden is capable of winning, Joe Biden is further to the right as a segregationist architect of the crime bill loyalist to Wall Street, who is now an, an accused rapist as well, and also cannot get through an interview without losing his, his train of thought, essentially. He is actually further to the right than Hillary Clinton, as Hillary Clinton is further to the right than Barack Obama. And so the trend of continually moving to the right continues. And Trump was a reaction to Obama and Obama's failure to actually stand for working people during the crisis of 2008, during the Great Recession. And so what will the reaction to Biden be? What will the essentially turn from Biden be? Trump is essentially a self-interested, egomaniac, reality TV show, you know, kind of neo-fascist, as Cornell West says. But the next person in response to, to what Biden comes in and Biden himself, I mean, that's going to be even more terrifying because if when the concerns of working people are just continuously not addressed through this kind of pendulum back and forth with working people, you know, running from one party to the next, trying to escape these long-term trends that I described and not seeing it happen, seeing them accelerate instead, really lays the groundwork, I think, for authoritarianism and dictatorship in this country.
Yes, these supermajority issues, Medicare for All, Green New Deal, Living Wage, and others are consistently rejected by or beaten down by the Democratic Party. Therefore, supermajorities of Americans, as you said, have no party. Absolutely right. And you've seen it as well in the fact that over the last decade and a half, there has been a steady increase in the number of Americans who said that we need a major new party in this country. It's now at about 57% to 38%. That's astonishing, given that we live in a a two-party, you know, first-past-the-post system, single-member district system, that so many people, without even having experienced in their life what a multi-party system looks like, they believe that we need a major new party. And also the fact that The two parties, the Democrats and Republicans, the major parties, they have, over the last decade and a half over the same period, they have essentially dissolved. They have been dissolving. Millions of people have been leaving them, have been switching their registration with them, have been becoming independents. And now we're at a point where there are so many independents, it's about 45% of the country, whereas the Democrats and Republicans only represent about 27% of the country each. And so it's close to half. It's close to half of the country. And so the political system now is becoming unstable because there's so few people who remain there and who remain content with those parties. And we, in fact, look further because Gallup has polled annually whether people want a major new party. And that's how we've seen that number steadily increasing. And they ask the people who still consider themselves Democrats or Republicans, the 27 percent who still self-identify that way. And they said, well, those of you who are in the minority who self-identify as Democrats or Republicans, okay, would you even want a major new party or are you content with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party as it is? And they found that half of those who remained in those two corporate parties said, yes, we would prefer to be in a major new party if that existed as well, those who weren't independent. And so that leaves When you finish boiling down the numbers, it leaves about 13% of Americans who are content to call themselves Democrats and are happy to be in that party, and 12% of Republicans, Americans who are happy to be Republicans and call themselves Republicans and be in that party. And so 13 and 12%, a quarter of the country, and the other 75% of the country says that we need something different. And that's that's an astonishing supermajority right there. And that's why you're seeing the kind of instability that you're seeing and the breakdown and a time that is really ripe for a major new party to come about and and speak on these supermajority issues and build a majority around that. In particular, the issue of corruption, the issue of the two parties and the way they operate in this system of legalized corruption and taking big money. The Movement for a People's Party has not and will never take a dime in corporate money or super PAC money. And that's how you know that we're honest, because as long as the corporate party, as long as a party, political party or candidates are being financed by corporations and billionaires and super PACs, then you know that that's who they're accountable to. Parties and candidates need to be financed by the people. And that's how we know they're accountable to us. One of the things that we have arrived at as the Movement for a People's Party is that we have to do more and go further than just creating a new party in the United States. 
our goal is not to reinvent a Democratic or Republican Party. The fact that those parties exist in the way that they do is a result of their internal structures and the way that they exist internally. And so the Democratic and Republican parties are essentially committees of corporations. And this is something that I saw up close and personal on the Bernie Sanders campaign when I was trying to convince DNC members to support Bernie and in his 2016 campaign. And so they are comprised largely of corporate lobbyists and also members of consulting firms who sit on their national committee and they make the decisions for us on the DNC. You have Pfizer represented, Citgo represented, Google represented. And so the idea that we expected that these corporate lobbyists are going to sit in a room and they're going to make decisions and that somehow that's going to end up in decisions that reflect the interests of working people, that is perhaps the most ludicrous idea of all to me. And so in a major new party, what we need to do is not just create a new party. We need to reinvent what it is structurally. There needs to be no corporate money. We need to close the revolving door. And we also need to have accountable and elected leadership. Because when Tom Perez was elected, you know, in quotes, to lead the Democratic Party, for example, you didn't get a vote. I didn't get a vote. Nobody got a vote, you know. And that's because it was simply the donors and the DNC members who chose him. And so there's no accountability inside the Democratic and Republican Party to the membership, to the base. There needs to be the ability to elect leadership and also to remove leadership or recall leadership if it becomes, uh, if there's the desire to do that, or if they feel that leadership is betraying the mandates of which they were put to, to do, uh, to, to essentially embody and to represent the people of the party. There also needs to be a more binding platform because in the Democratic and Republican Party, the platform is not worth the paper that it's printed on. Not once has a corporate Democrat said, you know, I'm sorry, lobbyists, but I cannot represent your corporate position because it's just not in our platform. Medicare for all has been in the California Democratic platform for years, and yet it's the Democrats who have full control of all you know, both houses of the state legislature and the governorship who have blocked Medicare for all for all that time. And so there needs to be a more binding platform for candidates. And so those are some of the structural changes that we need to make inside the party to make it, to to decentralize it, to put the power genuinely inside the membership and to make it actually speak for working people. That was Nick Bronner of the Movement for a People's Party. The Green Party held its national convention this weekend and nominated party co-founder Howie Hawkins as their presidential candidate. Angela Walker, a black activist from Milwaukee, is Hawkins' vice presidential running mate. Black Agenda Report's Margaret Kimberly is a Green Party activist, and bar editor and columnist Ajamu Baraka was the Greens' vice presidential candidate in 2016. Both Kimberly and Baraka spoke at the party convention. First, Margaret Kimberly. It's a pleasure to be with you at this pivotal moment. With the COVID-19 pandemic, which has exposed that our nation is a failed state, but every ill, every injustice was magnified when George Floyd died at the hands of police, when Ahmed Arbery died at the hands of racist vigilantes, and Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks 
also died at the hands of the police state, the modern day slave patrol. This movement is long overdue, a spontaneous expression of outrage, but it needs political organizing in order to create lasting change. The Green Party is vital here. Every four years, millions of people want to see healthcare, housing, and education treated as human rights. They want to cut the military budget and have peace around the world and end up living in vain hope that the Democratic Party, the supposed left, will stop doing what it's been doing for decades. We have a duopoly composed of a far-right and a center-right party. The center-right party has lived off its reputation as the party of the welfare state and civil and human rights. We see their subterfuge with progressive candidates. In 2015, Bruce Dixon, my bar comrade and an active Green, wrote that Bernie Sanders was sheepdogging for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He was right about 2016 and even about 2020, which sadly he didn't live to see. We have a profit-driven healthcare system, which means millions don't get care at all, a lack of worker rights, a minimum wage that hasn't gone up for years. And the time has come for democratic, small d, democratic solutions. And we have to stop focusing on Trump. These issues didn't begin in January 2017. And he makes our work harder as we hear, well, if something's better than Trump, the argument is supposed to end. Yes, we condemn the racist rallies, the children in cages, the protesters being tear gassed. But the Democrats try to fool the people by tearing up his speeches and wearing Kenta cloth, but giving him a space force, a military budget, and a paltry $1,200 to help people living through this crisis. The economy wasn't doing well before with low wage work and gig work and unemployment that didn't measure all of the unemployed. This is the result of decades of austerity and Democrats want to go along with Republicans in upholding this system. There's endemic racism in healthcare. In cities like Detroit, black people were routinely turned away, denied treatment for coronavirus. Across the country, it was communities of color that bore the brunt of the impact. But people are moving and want to be organized. Work stoppages have happened at Amazon and Whole Foods and Instacart. Public employees, sanitation workers, transit workers have all mobilized to give themselves health and security. For anyone concerned about so-called third parties, we say this. The solution is to get rid of one of the two wings of the duopoly and replace it with the party for peace, for workers, for the planet, a party that acts against corporate interests and war. We know that the Democrats are refusing even minimal reforms, and they foisted Joe Biden, a right-winger who brags about his role in strengthening the mass incarceration state, who tells big funders that he will not change anything if he becomes president, that he'll keep the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, that he will keep the deadly sanctions that kill people in Iran and Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Cuba and so many other countries. But we know we can't have justice here and have injustice abroad. Greens do not see foreign policy as a frill. And so we demand that the defense budget be cut. 
a defense budget that takes up 60% of the federal budget ensures that the people's needs cannot be met. We want to get rid of the 1033 Defense Department program, which gives surplus equipment, military equipment, to local police departments. And we know that the Democrats, despite any complaints about us, raised a billion dollars and then couldn't get more than an additional 10,000 votes in the state of Michigan. So we have to commit ourselves to step forward this year to organize ourselves and to organize people who have no experience with the Green Party. And I challenge all of us, myself included, to make certain that we have an impact in our communities and that we introduce people to the Green Party platform. They already know about it. They know the Green New Deal, which Democrats claim to want, started with us. So here we are, and we have to be honest about what we want. Are we a real political party? We're not an affinity group. We're not a club. And we should not call ourselves a party if we're not working to elect more Greens to office and to grow our numbers. Where is this movement headed? It's an important time, but it's also dangerous. People must act with knowledge. It's easy to grasp on to the hot slogan of the moment, but people are inadvertently agitating for things which may not be as they seem. Defunding police can lead to budgetary sleight of hand, which also does nothing to change the nature of policing. We must demand community control of the police, community control of every aspect of our lives. And then we will have a real democracy in this country, but the Green Party must lead this effort. My name is Ajamo Baraka. I am a committed member of the Green Party and was on the ballot in 2016. This is a very, very important historical moment. And I'm honored to have an, an opportunity to share a few comments. Objectively, we have to understand the context in which the Green Party uh, is operating, both international and domestic. We have a grinding uh, economic crisis in which there are irreconcilable contradictions that we have to come to terms with, both in the international economy and domestically. Uh, domestically, we have a situation where people never really recovered from the downturn of the economy uh, in 2007 and 2008. But now as a consequence of the veritable collapse of the economy, uh, as a consequence of COVID-19, and we have a situation that for many people in the U.S. Uh, and really around the world uh, is dire. It's quite clear that the ruling class is more concerned with saving the economy uh, than the lives of the people. And that's why we have seen the kinds of moves that were made by the Trump administration with the full support of the corporate class to drive people back into the economy, even when it was quite clear that the number of, of COVID-19 cases uh, was on the rise. This is uh, understandable. But it is the context now that we are dealing with, that basically people have been radicalized. They understand that they are just mere cogs in a capitalist uh, machine, uh, and they are looking for alternatives. There is no economic recovery. 
the contradictions of the current system suggest that there will be no return to normal. In fact, for many of us, normal was, in fact, a catching hell. The objective logic of the rulers today is an increasing dependence on force and violence. That's why we see the expansion of the military budget. That's why we're experiencing intensified domestic uh, repression, uh, nuclear upgrading and redeployments. Uh, All of these reflect a desperate attempt on the part of the rulers to uh, use force and violence in order to maintain uh, their hegemony. But we're not going to be deterred. We understand and we accept these conditions as the context uh, that the party has to be prepared to operate in. Uh, And we're going to do that and resist the opportunism that other parties engage in. Uh, We're going to adhere to our principles uh, and boldly state uh, the Green Party program. This provides tremendous opportunities for the Green Party. It's quite clear that the Green Party uh, has been driving progressive discourse in this country for, for a number of years. Now we have an opportunity to provide the kinds of answers uh, that people are looking for. The people recognize that there is no democracy in this country. They recognize that basically they have no real objective human rights uh, that are being respected uh, and promoted uh, by the state. Uh, therefore, they are looking for real alternatives that are grounded in a new kind of ethical framework. And that ethical framework, that political program, the Green Party really represents. But the party has to be ready. It has to be ready for the moment. It has to be prepared to uh, look at itself critically, uh, to make sure that it is getting itself in position to absorb the influx that the party is experiencing. It means that the party has to be, and the party activists have to be more visible on the local level. Uh, The party, the state party structures have to open up themselves for more participation, committed to expanding the party base across the country. It means that we have to pull behind uh, the party nominee and go out into the public and push the party's program Uh, with boldness and confidence, understanding that we're going to be the object of criticism, but that we are, in fact, on the right side of history. So this is the moment for the Green Party. Uh, It means that we have to prepare ourselves. We have to engage in conversations, sometimes painful struggle, to make sure that we are really positioned to take advantage of this moment and to go forward. So I salute Uh, Everyone who's participating in this uh, fantastic uh, gathering, let us go forward and build the kind of instrument that the historical moment uh, demands. Uh, Let us be reminded that we are, in fact, the party that puts uh, the people, planet, and peace over profit. And therefore, our growth opportunity is enormous. So let's build the party. Let's create a new U.S. and indeed a new world. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. 
Information for liberation.